Last week we saw very clear teaching in the Bible that to obey God, to please him, to live fully human lives, we need to love. First love God, then love one another. But the Christian faith does not say love is love, as if all loves are equal. But instead, it teaches that we are to love the right thing in the right way to the right degree. The problem is we are fallen humans in a fallen world. So things don't always work the way they're supposed to. In fact, they never do. And we're all dependent on grace unless God enters into the picture and forgives us and cleanses us. He he delivers us and heals us. Unless God enters the picture, then it can never be put right. And of course, God has entered the picture. God literally entered the picture when he takes on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. So that's what the gospel's about. It's not covering up human troubles. It's not pretending everything's okay. It's not positive thinking in that sense. It is good news, a message of hope. God has not abandoned us to our sin and our sorrows, but he's entered into the world to save. And so that's why we're here, because we believe that. But the human predicament, I've spent some time talking about that, trying to make sense of it. It's very important as we go forward in some of the things we're going to talk about that we understand it. The human predicament, we are creating the image of God, so we are good creations. And every human being carries around the remnant of that goodness having been created in God's image. But we are also sinful. We have a bent towards sin. And actually committing sin, we become guilty. At the same time, we are embodied. And therefore, there is a weakness about our lives. We can be we can be shaped by our context. We are vulnerable in that sense. Think about trauma and how trauma changes people. And so many people who deal with with drug abuse and other problems in life, you can trace that back to early trauma or or perhaps trauma as a young adult on the wharf, on a battlefield or some such thing. So we are influenced by our environment. Not only that, but when we When we develop habitual ways of thinking or acting, those become embedded in our brain, and it's very difficult to overcome those things. So this is the human predicament. We are created good, and yet we have this bent towards sin, and we are weak and and subject to influence that can lead us to God but can also lead us away from God. So we need salvation, as I said, and we need healing, as I said. God intervenes. If he doesn't, then we find ourselves with yearnings that are good, we're created as God's image, yearnings that are not good, sinful, yearnings that are ambiguous because of our embodied nature. And so the heart of that is disordered love. We love some things 
that we ought to love, but so often we don't love them in the right way or to the right degree. And that's true for every human being. Every human being loves. In fact, if you want to know something about a person, if you really want to know who they are, don't ask yourself, what do they believe? You ask yourself, what do they love? If you want to know yourself, it's not just what you believe, it's what you love. So every human being has disordered love. That's why, that's why we can't just consult our own feelings or inclinations to establish what is right and wrong. That's why ethics are not guided by the inward look. We have to look up to God and to look up to God to see what God tells us about us, who we are and how we are to live means we need to look in Scripture. So I want to circle back today to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to read not the entire chapter. I'm going to start in verse 5, and I'll be skipping some verses, but let's start reading. It says, Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Somehow I have a bad feeling that I've read the wrong verse, have I? No, I'm still, I'm still on track. Look over down to verse 15. That's the problem when you start skipping verses and you put it on a slide, you can't remember. Sometimes I write it down in a notebook and you'll see I read it from a notebook. It's because I've edited the text and I want to make sure I get it right. Look in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone, for I will and I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. 
Now, I want to take some time with this passage, but before I do, I need to speak to something that I know will enter a lot of people's minds. As we read about the first man and the first woman and how God brings them together, inevitably, some will ask, well, what about people who are single? What about them? Are they somehow unable to fit into God's plan? Well, the answer surely has to be no. Jesus himself was single, but, but how does that make sense, actually? Or what about those who are single again, whether through being widowed or especially through divorce? How does this speak to them? Or what about women and their place in church and society? Does this passage suggest that women are somehow subordinate to men? And it's quite obvious as you read through the whole Bible that in the biblical world, women did take a subordinate role to men. What about women? And then naturally, you read it and you think, what about people who same-sex attraction? It's not that they chose it in cold blood. They just find themselves feeling attracted to the same sex, and they may even feel a real love for someone of the same sex. What about that? And what about gay marriage and all the questions surrounding that? How does this passage speak to that? And then perhaps even deeper in some ways, what about people who are born intersex? They exist, you know. In fact, though it's not perhaps what you'd call common, it's not as rare as most of us think. And what about those who live with what's called gender dysphoria? They have this deep sense that they are in the body of one sex, but they are really another. And so there's this distress that they feel. What about that? And what about seeking to live according to the pattern of Genesis 2 in a culture that is not friendly to the pattern set out in Genesis 2. These are all very, very important questions. And in fact, it forms a kind of outline of where I'm going. Because next week, I want to talk about singleness. And believe me, even if you're married, I will be saying things that pertain to everyone. But I want to talk about that from a biblical perspective and to understand it in a biblical perspective. The same thing the following week dealing with divorce. Because see, I'm not after a particular group here. I didn't start this series because I wanted to somehow, you know, make an attack on homosexuality or something of that. That's not where I'm coming from. It seems to me that in our day, we see moral disorder just widespread and across the field, and it touches families in many different ways. And so I want us to deal with that. So when we talk about divorce, how does that fit in with the passage we read and what God intention, God's intention is for humanity? I've spoken on that subject before, but I want to come back to it. And, and if you are divorced, please don't skip that service. I am not going to beat up on you. In fact, you may very well find surprising hope in what the Bible teaches. Um, what about, I mentioned women and their role in the church and society. I want to address that next. I'm going to come to that because that's a very important issue for a lot of women in the church. Many women don't, don't you know, 
get upset about some of the some of the things that get said and done at church because they're used to it and they shrug and think, ah, man. (laughs) Other women, it doesn't sit so easily with them. And it's really a tragedy that in the evangelical, conservative, Bible-believing churches, there are women who will leave because they feel like they've not been respected. Well, what about that? Does the Bible subordinate women to men? I want to talk about that. It's a very important issue. And then we'll take up the issue of homosexuality and talk about it with some fairness. Let's be honest. So often Christians have borne false witness against people. Um, So we don't want to bear false witness and ascribe to individuals things that are not true. But we do need to talk about this subject because it's very important. It's a challenge to the Christian teaching. And it's a challenge that has undermined the faith of many Christians because the challenge sounds plausible. It sounds plausible. Love is love. It sounds plausible. So, So it tends to destabilize many Christians, their confidence in the Bible. And then, of course, we have the, the other factor of the transgenderism, and I'm going to take up that. Um, and, and then I want to talk about how you actually live according to biblical principles in these areas, these controversial areas, in a society that doesn't, doesn't support them. And in fact, that it seems to be growing more and more hostile to them. So we've got a lot of ground to cover, a lot of important ground to cover. But I wanted to say that because, you know, I just know how I am. And if somebody reads this passage and I'm sitting in the congregation, I'm thinking, well, that sounds fine, but what about, what about, what about, what about? And all I can tell you is in the few minutes I have this morning, I can't talk about everything. But let's Having cleared the ground, talk about this passage for just a couple of minutes. God creates Adam from the ground. He forms a body. That's an important statement because humankind is not some spirit that happens to be in a body. Our body is us. We are bodies, spirited bodies, you might say. So God forms Adam. But then... He also forms a helper suitable to him. Now, the language might sound like like the woman is a second thought and that, you know, some some people say an improvement on the original version, human 2.0. But when, when the Bible says that the woman is to be a helper, that doesn't mean that she's like a handmaiden to the man. Helper is actually a term that's used in the Bible of God. God is said to be Moses' helper. That's a title that's given to him again and again. So no subordination is implied. The key word, though, is suitable. Um, The idea is complementary, that the woman is created like the man. And of course, she's like the man because she's created in the image of God, just like the man. Humankind is made male and female, both in the image of God. So she's like the man, and yet she complements the man by being different in significant and important ways. And of course, the difference, whatever it may entail, I mean, there's lots of studies, cross-cultural studies about Uh, psychological, emotional, mental differences between men and women. But put all that aside, let's just talk about the bodies. We are bodies. 
God forms the woman's body to be a complement to the man's body. And then the man and the woman recognizing that they belong to one another, and why not? Why not? Because there's a, a union in their creation. The woman is made from the man who is made from the dust of the earth. Recognizing that, the man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, or more accurately, the old translation puts it, cleaves to his wife, okay? Interestingly, men in this culture, you know, ancient culture, didn't leave their father and mother. It was the woman who left father and mother. So some scholars think there's a hint here, and we're not talking about someone literally leaving a home, but rather someone who is detaching from their family inheritance and beginning a new family with their spouse. So the man leaves father and mother and cleaves to the woman. That's a covenantal picture here. He enters into this holy covenant with this woman bound to her. This is a, an agreement, not so much an agreement. This is a, a commitment made one to another before God. Not with others, just with this singular woman. They are united together and form a home and they become one flesh, which points to the fact that they're establishing this family, but it also includes a physicality to it. And that's embedded in their biology. They come together as one flesh. This is an expression of their love. It's as God intended. That's why they're created with the bodies with which they are created, is so that they can then come together and express their love. And as they become one flesh, they join with God in that miracle of creation. Remember in Genesis 1, God creates humankind in his own image, and then it says, God blessed them, blessed them, and said, be fruitful and multiply. See, as the man and the woman come together in a holy covenant, in love, and are united, their very union brings children and a family is formed. This is all according to the plan and purpose of God. Our creation, our union, it's exclusive because that's how it can live. It can be blessed by God. It's exclusive and it brings children. It's one package. Now, I know this is where people start saying, well, what about, what about, what about? I know that. I'll get to some of those whatabouts, but just stick with the picture for a moment. You see how it all fits together. And this is God's blessing. That's the thing. This is God's gift. This is something that God gives us to secure our well-being and happiness. The tragedy of our day is that people hear of this gift, this provision that God has made for our well-being. They hear that and they feel it as something alien and oppressive and even hateful. That's the tragedy. 
You see, it doesn't always fit with how we see ourselves and what we think we want. But then again, we are fallen in a fallen world and we are subject to disordered loves. You see? People see this as oppressive, but it's not oppressive. Jesus told the story of a young man who felt oppressed. He was the younger of two sons. And he didn't want to wait till his father died, so he said to his father, I want my inheritance now. I don't want to wait. Give me my inheritance now. And the father gave him his inheritance. And he went off, separated from his family, and he thought he would use that inheritance to satisfy every longing of his heart. And that's what he did. No surprise, the Bible says, or Jesus says in the story, he lapsed into wild living. Now, I suspect when he first did that, everything seemed great. Wasn't it, wasn't it liberating to be free from the father and the family and all the rigidity of those expectations that the family had? Wasn't that, wasn't that wonderful? But then a famine comes and he becomes hungry and he hires himself out to try, try to keep body and soul together. And he's sitting there, now he's tending hogs, and he looks at the hogs and he thinks, I wish I could eat the pods they're eating. That's how hungry he was. Then there's an interesting turn. Jesus says, when he came to his senses, literally in the Greek, this is important, when he came to himself, he said, what am I doing here? I'm a son, and I'm living worse than my father's servants. What am I doing here? And he resolved at that moment he was going to go back home. And, of course, you know the story. He comes back home, and he receives forgiveness and acceptance, and he's celebrated. He was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found, brought back into the family. But you notice, the son thought to find himself, he had to leave the family. He had to separate himself. He had to follow his own star. He had to be true to his own desires. He was being hindered by all these requirements. But it was only when life didn't work out as planned that he came to himself and he realized who he really was. God created us a certain way. He has an intention and a plan in the way he creates us. It is God's good creation. And so we're invited to enter into it. And all too often we think, no, no, that's not what I want. And we resist it until we come to ourselves and come home. God wants all his children to come home. He wants all of us. We all have troubles. We all sin. None of us is perfectly straight. We're bent in different ways, and we need mercy, and we need patience, from God, I mean, and we need his power to change. We all need that. But it's clear that God has created us for a certain path, and that's what we need to keep in mind. That's what we need to walk in. 
Now, it's going to vary for some of us. That's why I'm going to be talking next week about singleness and some other issues. But, but we need to keep in mind the path. Now, when I was planning this message, I was a bit concerned, to be honest with you, because this is the first Sunday of the month, and most first Sundays, we share the Lord's Supper. And I'm thinking, okay, how is this going to work? How does this flow into the Lord's Supper? And as I was studying, it, it was like, of course, because the passage I read in Genesis chapter 2, I'm applying it in some ways that, you know, pertain to our series. But it's interesting that Paul actually uses this passage to talk about husbands and wives. He does it in one of these so-called household codes. See, it's common in the ancient world to write codes for households. How is everyone supposed to behave in the household? Paul does that. The thing that's surprising about Paul is that he includes lengthy instructions for the head of the household, the male. That wasn't done. Generally, it's just the women and the children and the slaves who were told what to do. Paul spent lots of times with the men. And I want to read to you what he says there as we prepare ourselves for communion. Listen to what he says. I'm skipping what he says about to wives. Listen to what he says to husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Notice Jesus gave himself that the church might become that. Church is made up of sinners, but we are cleansed and forgiven. Now listen to this. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. That's interesting. It's a mystery, but, but I just want you to know, really, I'm talking about Christ and the church here, not just about husbands and wives. But you notice, the husband is to love his wife as his own body. And Paul's drawing on this idea of the woman created out of the man and being created that they might be reunited. And he says, you love your wife, you're loving yourself. She is part of you. And she, he says, the church is part of Christ. Christ loves us as himself, for we are part of his body. He's drawing on all these analogies here. And of course, he said, he gave himself for us so that sinners could be holy and righteous, cleansed in his presence. That's what he did. And he did it because we belong to him. And so as we share the Lord's Supper this morning, I want to invite you to think about that, that Christ's union with us is so intimate and so profound. On a spiritual level, Paul says it's mysterious. It's all based on God's self-giving love. 
And so Jesus gave his body and he gave his blood a gift that saves, that restores, and that heals. Truly, as we share the Lord's Supper, that becomes, in emblem form, the answer to all the disorders that ail us. Pray with me. Lord, as we remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, as we eat and drink in memory of his saving work, may you, by your Holy Spirit, move across this congregation, touch each heart, heal, forgive, and save. Amen.